Welcome to Veterans in Academics. This podcast highlights people and topics where the veteran experience and academia overlap. Join your host, Dr. Luke McLeese, in this groundbreaking content. Each week, we explore new stories, topics for you. Good afternoon, everyone. I'm Dr. Luke McLeese, and I'm here with another episode of Veterans in Academics. And today we have our special guest, Dr. Jeff Colgan. And Dr. Jeff, can you tell us a little bit about yourself, sir? Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, I am a clinical psychologist who, there's actually only five in the United States who work embedded as a uh, embedded psychological or behavioral medicine component to a fire district. I was a former uh, Coast Guard and Navy vet uh, uh, that kind of moved beyond that and went into uh, behavioral medicine. Super interesting. Super interesting. Awesome. So, Jeff, tell us a a little bit about what you've seen with your experience. So, you obviously have military experience. You have uh, your experience in emergency service type things and then as well as academics to, to be where you are. Can you tell me, sir, something that you see uh, that veterans are contributing in a positive way in higher education and academics? Going through, and as you well know, going through, you know, 10 odd years of education gives you a lot of exposure to different people and different cultures and different philosophies, especially when you go to school for that long, you go to many different schools typically, right? Kind of all across the United States and you get a really good sample of what is working, what isn't working. What I saw from the veteran community, first and foremost, we almost seek each other out when, we, when, when you go to school. And that really is kind of a, a super beneficial support system. Uh, we can relate to each other. We have common language, right? We have common right. cultural norms. And we're able to speak the same language because when you get out, you, you're, you're a little bit separate from everybody else. You're, it, it's a little bit of an illusionary line, and sometimes it gets to be a little narcissistic. but we, it, it, the reality is, is that you did get re-sort of formed into something very different than the general public. That doesn't make you actually different. It just gives you that perception of such. So what I do think we do well is we kind of gel, uh, even, even in academics, um, we kind of come together, provide support systems, provide a little bit of a, and I'm just going to go ahead and use it, a little bit of a safe space for us to sort of process frustration or process like, I don't understand this. You know, there's a lot of bloat in academia, just like there's bloat in the military. And, you know, we, we, we do support each other's experiences, I think, really, really well in that, in that uh, arena. Um, I, don't, I don't know if that's been your experience, but it's been my experience for the most part. No, definitely. It definitely was my personal experience. Uh, It was also something I noticed when I was an assistant professor. And now that I'm in my role uh, as a director of military affairs and services, um, it's something I notice that still is the same, even though even though the services have improved, even though there's more programs, more job placement, all the stuff in higher education. Yes, what you just said, I still see it every day. I still see veterans it's like a little beacon you know it's like a a guy or a girl notices another guy or girl who uh is a veteran and you know at this point while i also notice on campus people will kind of give each other a hard time about the other branches and joke with each other it's really like they're kind of like 
hey, I'm going to poke fun at you, but thank God you're here. You know, like, I'm so happy to see that there's someone else, uh, you know, and typically, like, for the undergrad, it's, like, not older, like, 35 or older, but it's at 25 to 35 range. So they're like, okay, I'm just old enough to be older than the typical undergrad, but I'm not old enough to be the person who's, uh, you know, wheeling my books around on a little uh, suitcase cart. Yeah. But we definitely do gravitate to each other. We recognize the walk in each other's walk. We recognize our voice. All the things that require that the military sort of requires you to to get in line so that we are all on the same level of communication. So I think, think, you know, that's one of the things that I've seen us do really well. And the other thing I've seen us do really well is discipline. Um, I, again, I think we also have a tendency to move into the costly perseverance version of grit. But I think right. we... I think we do do discipline fairly well for the most part. I think we have some vulnerabilities that we can talk about in a little bit, but I think we do when veterans have support, they have this sort of reframing of what they're doing there and why we're really, it's really fairly easy for us to shift from my mission is X to my mission is finishing an academic. Um, It's just sometimes we do need help kind of dragging across a reframing of what you're doing and why as a as a military mission is different than an academic mission in in in, in sort of really um, explicit ways but implicitly they're almost exactly the same so when right. we're, you know or you know what i mean when we're able to sort of reframe what we're doing and why we really kind of move across those uh, academic requirements very well when we don't is kind of what I've seen where we struggle. Well, and let me ask you, so so my next question was, what is something that us as military and connected and veteran students and faculty and staff can improve upon in the sphere? Would you say that is it? Would you say recognizing the, the similarities and differences of, you know, one mission to the next? Or I think, what would you... I think so. I think we, you know, I think the things that make us strong in academia also, it's two sides of the same coin, meaning that, yep, most of us got out and saw the world a little bit, but you also know that the older that you get and the more that you travel, you realize the time that you spent in the military probably wasn't as extensive and cultural building as you thought it was. Um, And so occasionally that we walk into there with a sense of narcissism and entitlement that, you know, I went out and spent, you know, lived lived life, you know, at at super high volume. And so I'm better than you are. And that actually just causes more distress because that causes something, you know, we think we're this and we, we, we think we're this identity, but really we're showing up and we're just the same as everybody else trying to get a degree trying to learn something. And so I think that sort of, um, we get a little xenophobic, you know what I mean? We, we, have, we, we can pull ourselves in and away from society rather than stepping out and being a little bit more vulnerable and building on who we are and go ahead and take that fat heaping of humble pie and realize that once, you, once you've stepped into this space, you're just the same as everybody else. You have just the same amount of challenges. You have just the same amount of stuff to manage that everybody else does. And so I think for me, that's been the biggest thing. I've, I've seen people drop out of school because they just think they're too good for it. They, they just kind right. of, they, they have their own, like I said, they're unable to, to reframe the mission parameters to something in academia. 
and pull the other students that aren't veterans into their circle so that they have far more resources, support, and perspectives to build on. They keep pulling themselves, pushing themselves away as a sort of um, as a sort of defense mechanism for really trying to grow uh, and deal with that because that academic distress is not the same as military distress. Right. It's completely different. Right, right. And, and just because you're good at that distress does not mean you can hold all those, the learning modules and, you know, assignments. And yes, there's bloat because there's bloat and everything. It's bureaucratic, but you get through it. But that is a whole different skill set. And if you don't open yourself up to, yes, now I'm a civilian and a veteran, right? You're building on your identity. It has a ten. I mean, I've seen just people just completely lose it who were super super intelligent and really focused but they just couldn't get past that right right you know and i've loved that you keep bringing up uh the idea of building on who you are because you know personally uh, i would say when it comes to personal development and psychological development i'm definitely a constructivist you know and i think Piget and vygalski apply in this so nicely exactly to what you said Yes, we have certain experiences that are going to be different from the civilian population. And I agree with you. There's, there's no reason to blow that out of proportion because that's a lot of, when I'm talking to people, that's a lot of the reason why we signed up for this experience is to have some different experiences. Yes. Right? And so I, I agree with you. I think that it's something that we can take as one of our building blocks and make very positive instead of fetishizing the negative aspects of it. Cause there's a positive and negative to, to every situation, you know, and even in social construct. I, but I love the way you put fetishizing. It's absolutely, that's a perfect word for it, but you, you know what I mean? It, it is, it is a blatant overcompensation for a lack of confidence in an area that we didn't build as veterans. We right. don't, we just don't hit academics like that in that format with all the shades of gray of good and bad that you do not get in the military, right? The military almost sets you up in a very border, and I'm going to use a psychological term here, a very borderline type of presentation, meaning that you're either, a, you're either an a- asset or liability and there's nothing in between. Where in academia, all of those asset liability false paradigms don't actually exist and there are a million shades of gray because some days you're a liability and some days you're an asset and some days you're a little bit of both right in the military especially on deployment you don't have room for that so like realistically yes we we go out and we get all kinds of uh, experiences but we carry our culture with us you know our, our experiences are very kind of constrained to a very specific mission a very specific time versus you know going back into academia and hauling that in and pretending that that you know we're special somehow because we did that and fetishizing that experience is just simply not helpful and it's doing way more damage than it is good it's just serving so you know when i treat or support veterans in a psychiatric sense um, most of what i see is not trauma it is a lot of what we call ego dystonia I think I'm supposed to be this, but I'm this, and I can't make those two things meet. Right. Realistically speaking, almost everybody I see has a far more, presents like that far more than they do a very, very strict trauma or or a different type of presentation. Very, very interesting. So, okay, so you're obviously 
able to talk at a lot of detail given what you've what you do so this is great now let me ask you a few things about how you got here so let's start with with your service and you mentioned it earlier can you tell us a little bit about what prompted you to join the military and then once you got to the military like what was your job like what did you do so i actually you know out of high school i was kind of the i was a prototypical jock four sport athlete um i didn't do a whole lot of academics but i tested well in academics i just didn't i didn't have a family that really leaned much into academics so i never really focused so when i went to college i went to college for soccer and i just didn't have the maturity the development the the perspective to do well in college and I stopped playing soccer and I transferred into snowboarding and I actually started professionally snowboard for a few years. Oh, interesting. Yeah. I, I mean, I loved it. I still do it. Uh, I still do it pretty hard, but I got, you know, I got in kind of a bad space. I wasn't really making a whole lot of progress. And I was like, you know what? I want to go do something. I want to go, uh, you know, I was looking for purpose is basically, you know, I was, I was meaning making, right. I was looking for purpose. And, you know, I was like, I was like, you know, I'm fairly physically robust. I'll go join the military. But at the time I joined the military, I, I was super naive. I didn't really understand anything. I thought I understood way more than I did. And I was like, well, nobody's really doing anything. You know, little did I know anything about that, but I was like, but the coast guard, they go out and save people all the time. Right. Like I was like, oh, I could actually go do something. And so I joined the Coast Guard and it was okay. I, but so I, my first duty station was up here in Seattle where I kind of am now. Um, okay. And what I saw was they had, back in the day, they had divers. And they only had about 30 divers in the entire Coast Guard. And so I was like, dude, I want to do that. Um, right. You know, so enlisted guy wanted to go be a diver and little, I had no idea what I was getting into. At that time, the only place they had for Coast Guard divers was to go through Navy Explosive Ordnance Disposal, which was a special warfare school in the Navy. And we didn't have a prep program. We didn't have anything. So I went to, you know, Banger Sub Base up here, tested with a hundred other uh, seamen. And I was literally at the time, the only one that passed. Oh, wow. And I, and I can tell you that the PT test is not that hard, but me in a Coast Guard uniform testing with a hundred other Navy people, they, I think those Navy sailors got beat for about two hours after I left. <laughs> it was, it was quite the experience. So I went, I, you know, I deployed, I went to Guam. I, I after uh, explosive ordnance disposal school, I also went to additional medical training for flight and dive uh, EMT. Um, oh, very cool. So I went to Guam because that was one of our main diving units. But there, because I went through EOD and a bunch of other things, I got to work with the Navy quite a bit. So we were doing a lot of alien migrant interdiction operations, uh, you know, basically human trafficking, um, drug smuggling and search and rescue. And then I got a lot of time with medical relief out there in Guam, you know, in the South Pacific with third world countries. Um, and I'd work with Navy medical teams a lot to go out and to the indigenous folks out in the South Pacific to provide uh, inoculations, medical relief, hygiene. Um, but what changed my career there? Uh, first, I got the my my whole my career call was out there. I I was the I was the only person at the time that had been given instruction on how to work a portable hyperbaric a prototype portable hyperbaric chamber, and uh -huh. we got. We got a call out uh, to go get somebody in an island out there called Chuk. And uh, I was the only one that could run it. And we took a dive medical officer who had worked with it 
explosive ordnance disposal mobile unit five out there, the EOD mobile unit. And he worked the physics in the chamber because we had to fly and press a patient at altitude in a C-130, which had never done, been done before. Oh, wow. Um, yeah, wow. so I got my career call out there, and it was super epic, and it was just, it was the coolest thing ever. Um, but uh, what that physician and I, the relationship that we built, what, he was a fantastic physician, but, and I wanted to go into medicine. Um, but he, what he did was he stopped and was like, look, I, our medicine is great. Our emergency medicine is, is beautiful, and it really is. Um, but what Americans are complete garbage at is uh, building relationships and looking at long-term health, not imposing our priorities and our medical interventions on other people of other cultures with different sets of values and priorities. And so when we started to go do this, we shifted our perspective and really started to build more relationships than, than we did medicine but that medicine got so much better because of the relationships that were built. Uh, very cool. So this is where my, my interest began. Like, and so I, after 9-11 hit and I, you know, got really engaged for a little while in the military, I didn't really, you know, that was a really hard time for everybody. A lot of work, a lot of long hours, but unfortunately I got injured pretty bad and I had to have several surgeries. And so that's when I got out and got into academics. Okay. Okay. Man, super interesting. Super duper interesting. And so how, what you just described, how many, how many years was that, Jeff? So I was in eight years. Um, okay. I, just, I got out just a few months shy of my eight year because of my surgeries and I was medically retired. Right. So eight years, I mean, do you think you were planning on prior to your injuries, uh, maybe possibly making a career out of it or hundred oh, percent. I really? would, I would have absolutely been a career, which is why getting out really, really wrecked me pretty hard. Okay. So let's talk about that when you transition. So obviously there's this context here where um, it was different for, for example, for you than it was for me when I was ready to get out. I was like, I'm ready to get, I'm past ready to get out. Yeah. Right. I always tell people the Marine Corps was the absolute best thing I ever did with my life that I would never, ever do again. But um, <laughs> so, Jeff, so you wanted to stay in and it sounded like you were on your way to do that. And this happened. So talk about transition for you and, and how education came into that. You know, was it on the radar? Was it not? What was going on with you? Yeah, I didn't, like so many vets, I didn't actually put a whole, like a ton of value in academics. I didn't understand it. It didn't build well with me. As many military, as many veterans, we hold this dichotomy and this really, really weird dialectic of being in a super authoritarian organization. But then again, when we get out, we don't want to be told what to do. And how to <laughs> right, do it. right. It's a weird, super weird <laughs> thing, like, like right? Um, and so I had, a, I struggled with it, but, you know, I lost my entire identity. I, I, over, I over identified with my job because I didn't really have I mean, I had a bunch of different things that made me me, but I had put so much into becoming what I thought I was supposed to do and who I thought I was supposed to be that when I got injured and got out, I had a bunch of rehab. My, you know, my, I, my shoulder was reconstructed. My wrist was reconstructed. Oh, wow. I had a lot of head injuries. Um, and so I had a real hard time putting it back together. We'll, when we go into the uh, professional work, Microsoft actually did piece on me on adaptive uh, gaming. Uh, and so I, I kind of rehabbed a little bit 
socially, that was when online gaming was kind of coming on the scene. Okay. I didn't really want to talk to anybody. I was fairly depressed. I struggled with depression pretty strongly. Uh, and gaming was one safe way for me to communicate, but to cut off when I just, I was done. Right. Um, and I knew that um, my, it was really my wife at the time was like, look, dude, you have got to get your your stuff in one sock, man. You have got to fix this. Um, we didn't really, you know, we didn't really understand what was going on with me. I just struggled, but and I get, I'd go to start, you know, junior college, and I'd just drop off and I'd start it again. And it was really, you know, what it was? It was one professor. It was my microbiology professor. She put strong boundaries around me, like, no, I need you in class at this time, paying attention during this hours but I will help you. So it was just really a bit of a reparenting um, moment for me with right. that microbiology professor. And then all of a sudden, everything started to click. And I just kind of picked, you know, I started, I started getting the straight A's and I was asked to come back as a tutor and a TA and all of those things. But it really took that one professor to say, quit your BS. I need you to do this. Stop doing well on tests, but not turning in any homework. Like, like, right. Like when right. She, she's very much like, what are you doing? Stop messing around. I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> but it was, I just needed the one, at least for me, the one professor to go, stop, stop messing around. Do right. you want to do this or not? Cause if not go away. Well, it sounds like she was an insightful lady because, you know, she might have been responding to, I mean, like you said, she's open to, to helping you. So she obviously does care, right? But she packaged it with some starchy parameters. She might have been like, this is who I'm dealing with. And I need to tell them, like, get your butt to class, take notes. And then, you know, she gets, so that's super clever. I, I love it. I love it. Yeah. And I'm glad it worked for you. Yeah, you know, it's just, it just, it, I was basically this really temperamental, entitled child. I really was. I was like, no, I don't want to do this. I can do this. You know, I, I, I'm doing okay. And she knew I could do way better. So she put like, look, I'm going to put hard boundaries around you just like a parent did. She let me, you know, I would, I'd throw, I'd get irritated and re be really childish about it. And then all of a sudden I was like, oh shit. Okay. I, I actually need to do this. Okay. And I grew up, I, I literally kind of went from a very, very hardened professional in the military back to a very childlike state and then re-kind of parented myself through academics. I definitely think my wife would, would, would agree on that. So like I changed dramatically. Wow. Wow. Super cool story. So, so tell us, Jeff, so you, you get this run in with this, with this good professor who obviously is a very insightful lady. She sits you on track. You start doing well. And then what is your spark to say, hey, I'm going to keep this, this side of my life going? What, what, yeah. what caused that? So after I, I knew, you know, I had vocational rehab because I had all those, those service-connected injuries. And then I utilized that and I, I knew no matter what happened, I was either going to get an MD or a PhD. Okay. Um, once I really kind of got mission focused, I was like, okay, this is what I'm doing. I knew that my money would run out, right? Like I knew it would. And so I paid my way till my junior year. But once I went into my junior year and I was doing a double major. So I majored in um, okay. uh, health, health or human biology, pre-medicine with a minor in biochemistry and a, a uh, health psychology, both bachelor's of sciences, which was not smart. 
I cannot believe how the amount of work I did and the amount, that amount of time. It was just ridiculous. But I had one chemistry professor. So chemistry can get can kind of trip people up. I had one chemistry professor who took the abstraction of chemistry, right? You're looking at structures, you're looking at charges, you're looking at um, interactions and put them in a very functional format. Like when you taste something, this is the chemistry associated with that. Or when you, when you bleed, this is the chemistry associated with that. So he put this in a very usable functional format. And for me, all of a sudden, just like the microbi- my microbiology professor, I just started to take off. And then, then when I got to that place in psychology, because an undergrad in psychology, let's just be honest, it's almost not quite worth the paper it's printed on. But it's a great, but it's a great platform for moving into other areas, either clinical work or experimental work, education, you know, all those, the beginnings of psychology are super basic and they arm yourself. They give you just enough information to be dangerous and, and, and pretend that you know more than you do. And so once I got into the, the psychophysiology, then all of a sudden my two tracks just kind of melded and I moved into grad school. And I think one of the things that I, one of the most eye awakening things for me were, I can't tell you, and I know you know this, how much the messaging in the veteran community is academics are just brainwashing, you know, it's just institutionalization. And I can't tell you how inaccurate that, that can, how inaccurate that can possibly be because once you get to another level, your only job is literally adding something new to it that, that, that says, no, this isn't how this is. I want to challenge all the things, right? No. And so it was one of those, well, none of this is true. And so I just really leaned into it and really got going and I loved it. Awesome. Awesome. Then, so for, for your doctoral work, let's just talk about that real fast. Cause I, I have a feeling it's going to be super interesting. Uh, tell it. Tell us what you what your dissertation was, and maybe a little bit why you chose to study what you did. Sure. Um, so, in uh, I don't. I knew I wanted to study trauma. I knew trauma and pain for me. So the biochemistry associated with pain and the neurochemistry associated with trauma are so similar that I wanted to. That was what I wanted to specialize in. But there are plenty of clinicians that, and researchers that will lean in hard into trauma. What I wanted to know was, just like many researchers, why some people are more resilient to trauma than others, or stress, or distress, why, or pain. Why are people more resilient to that than others? And so in 2014, we actually had a shooter, uh, sorry, 2015, we actually had an active shooter uh, show up on our campus and kill one student and injured two. So. It was super dramatic, and I had an opportunity to contribute to the academic literature on how students would would respond to this. And so I jumped into that with both feet. Uh, My master's thesis, which was published on it, was looking at trait resilience and post-traumatic outcomes from that. Um, And then my dissertation built on that for, so I wanted to look at, I knew we knew re- resilience and proxim- emotional proximity and physical proximity would adjust and shift our ability to be resilient to meaning that if you and I are very close friends it, and, and I'm right next to you, it's going to be far more difficult for me and you get shot. It's going to be far more difficult for me to process than if I'm physically distant from you and emotionally distant. So that, that we really wanted to add data to, right? Like we can assume those things, but we didn't really understand the phenomenology of that. But my dissertation was 
so when I work with vets and uh, first responders, which basically I either work with, I specialize in veterans of first responders or on the other side of the spectrum, these dangerously mentally ill. So uh, the yeah. forensic population, like schizophrenia, personality disorders, the really, these folks <laughs> have committed crimes, really bad stuff. I also work with those folks, but I recognized the over identification and victimization and a sort of, like you said, fetishizing of the traumatic, traumatized soldier, Marine, sailor, right? I, oh, I, I saw this and, and our interventions were okay, but I also recognized that our data on some of the progressive, so some of the things that we do to treat veterans, actually the data wasn't that good when I opened it up. One of the, one researcher at the VA just kind of dropped a bomb on a lot of the research. And so what I, what I found was it was a lot of the cognitive processing that was tripping people up and really move, accepting the trauma and moving on from there rather than over identifying with it. So I really wanted to look at how rumination affects resilience. Um, and so uh, that was my dissertation, just sort of look at that. And that was, um, you know, accepted uh, about a year and a half ago. So uh, I really wanted to build on understanding how uh, rumination affected resilience and, and the, that behavior and identification and stuff like that. Really, really interesting. Really interesting and really needed for sure. And now let me ask you, and, and I think anybody listening and if they've paid attention to what you've said about your background, they're going to know exactly uh, where you're going to answer this. But can you share with everyone how your experience in the Coast Guard, how how that time uh, and and your experiences as a transitioning veteran have informed uh, exactly the type of academic work that you got into. Yeah, so I think a lot of my medical experiences kind of shaped and and to be honest with you, I have not stepped out of service since I joined the Coast Guard. Right. I know. I know it drives a sense of purpose for me. Uh, I didn't mention it before, but I also contract with Microsoft as a neurobehavioral research designer. Which, realistically speaking, if I wanted to lean into that field, I could make about double the earnings. But it doesn't have the same um, meaning for me, and so I, I will always, at some, to some degree, be interested and be involved with helping building. Uh, resiliency data and treating uh, veterans and first responders. And so the entire cultural experience for me was super meaningful and to serve others to add to my own resilience. It, it's kind of kept me moving forward and given me that sort of meaning. I don't have to, I don't have to scramble for finding meaning in my work. Tip, right. You know, I don't, I don't, I know, I know the folks need it. I have objective and objective data and anecdotal evidence. And, you know, it's just, it's, it's been super rewarding to maintain my service uh, and my volunteerism. I do a lot of pro bono work uh, for that reason, because, because I really started my young adult uh, life as uh, as a service member, being a volunteer is just part of my value system. And so um, it's it's been extremely valuable, extremely personality developing and professional developing. A, a, a uh, additional, I like like you, we kind of talked about in the very beginning. Um, sort of build the, the veteran doesn't go away, which I actually struggled with that in my graduate career, like not continuously over identifying as a veteran. Now you need to be a psychologist. How do you do both of those things? So that, that, like you said, 
that was a struggle, but I, I, with a lot of mentorship, uh, I figured that out and was able to add to it rather than just subsume it. So that, that's kind of how that worked out. That's really, really interesting. And I'm glad, I'm glad this is, this has been a common thread through all these interviews is that typically people who have joined the military uh, and then go on to any level of academics are really do it from the standpoint of service. It's really interesting that you said that because everybody in their own way, in their own capacity has expressed something similar to that. Uh, but I like really what you said with the amount of hours that you volunteer, because I don't think the general public realizes just the fact that not only are, are veterans kind of service career driven often, I mean, not always, but often, and everyone we've talked to has talked about that in some capacity but also the amount of volunteer hours. Uh, it's, it's insane when people talk about how much they volunteer to, you know, other veterans, their community, local, national, whatever the case might be. It's, it's really eye-opening and, and heartwarming. And like you mentioned, they're doing good, they're giving back, but also they're getting that thing in return where they're, where they're like, this validates my purpose, right? And I think that's vitally important to the whole process of people like yourself, of myself, and, and others that we've spoken to. You know, I think, I love that. I, th I think probably one of the biggest gifts that we can, you know, and academic, and you know this, academics doesn't stop, right? We don't stop learning. We, we, it's, we, it, right. we are obligated. It is our responsibility to continue to put out papers, right? To continue to learn, to continue to think, to continue to grow. But for me, I think the, our biggest mission, at least for other veterans, is to sort of at least mentor and guide folks and continue the service and volunteerism. Because I know for a fact, mathematically speaking, that is one of the biggest contributors to resilience across the board. When we talk about regression models, right, base weights and all the nerdy uh, statistical stuff, purpose and volunteerism contribute to resilience over almost everything. And so it's just, it's one of those things, like if we can sort of reframe and yes, self-development, I mean, you will turn into, a, you will add a dramatic amount of perspective to your identity with higher education. And it's more than I'm going to do 22 push-ups a day to remind everybody 22 veterans kill themselves a day. That's great right. and all, but we need people that can actually do something about right, that. Exactly. Yeah, you know what I mean? Like the thoughts and prayers and the 22 push-ups are great and you walk a mile a day for every day. And that those are great, but you're not actually contributing a whole lot functionally to that community. So that requires some work and some testing, but we have mentors and we have people that will help. And so I think that that is one of our biggest contributions. Like, no, yes, there's part of this that you're doing it for yourself, but think about all the things that you can do for other people with this. Absolutely. I completely love it, Joe. So Jeff, great. Tell us, uh, tell us some things that you've got going on currently, or maybe some projects that you're working on in the near future here. Can you share with us what you've got going on? Sure. So right now I'm working in collaboration with Lacey Fire District number three, which is the fire district that I work for. And like right. I said before, I do contract with Microsoft on operational and societal resilience. And so we are applying mathematicians, economists, um, psychologists, MDs, AI, PhDs into this COVID 
phenomenon. I've done a lot of conference presentations on it because uh, as you, we kind of didn't go into it, but I have, uh, you know, I'm a microbiologist. I was a microbiologist during the H1N1 pandemic, and now I'm doing a resilience psychologist. And so those two things just coincidentally had a very unique spin on everything. And so the amount of literature review and data and operational resilience information I've put out has gained some traction. And so I've been working in conjunction with Microsoft and, and, and the fire department to look at ways we can make our society more resilient. And you will see those start to come out very, very soon. This is a huge project. As we know, our greatest amount of objective evidence suggests that our natural disasters will increase in severity and, and frequency, as well as our man-made disasters are going to, you know, pa uh, pandemics, shootings because of our population and because of a bunch of other different factors will continue to increase that we need to be a bit more resilient we need to be able to show up and pivot 180 degrees with whatever we need to be able to do and so this is the project currently that i'm working on and we're doing a lot of work in that area very interesting and so what do you think the the future will hold for dr jeff hogan um i, I don't see myself ever really uh unplugging from the veteran and first responder community. Um, anything that I typically get involved in research-wise or, you know, clinical-wise has a tendency to put up some boundaries. But research-wise, I always look for veterans to fill in spaces that I can help out with. So what I think will happen in the future is a continued engagement in societal and community and individual resilience as far as objective information and going out into communities and showing them better ways to be more resilient, uh, increase our education, like push back on the idea that education is just this sort of indoctrination and you can't really, you know, but at the same time trying to help it, you know, academia, you know, reduce bloat. So I really see uh, working continued with academics to pull more uh, veterans in the space, to pull more scientists in the space, the tech community, which is just full speed right now with right. quantum AI, uh, societal resilience, uh, and, and, and medicine. And then first responders who are our number one first line for community resilience, period. They're the ones that when everything goes wrong, they're the ones that buffer the crisis, right? And so like really building on that sort of a dynamic is where I'm interested in. And right now, we just have a ton of work and a ton of interest. Wow. Wow. Really interesting. Interesting and sounds very impactful. And, you know, of course, well needed. Like you said, there are things that we can't circumvent just based on our population increases and different cha environmental changes. So, man, Jeff, super interesting. I, but I, I do have to say I love this initiative about veterans and academics talking about talking to veterans and academics because we really do, like I said, we have a ton of potential. We have a ton of folks that are just kind of, they've gotten some really mixed, errored messaging. Almost everybody that I've talked to that, that, that sort of downplays or devalues academics hasn't actually engaged in academics. So yeah, I, I agree. Yeah. You know what I mean? It's been one of those like, wait, what do you talk? So which college did you go to? Well, I didn't go, but this is what they do. <laughs> right. Well, how do you, okay. Um, you know, and so I think we need to continue to a, we need to continue to make academics more applicable, but to understand to like to that message where, you know, it doesn't matter what you do, but if you are fully engaged, if you are passionate about what you do, like I made my own job. 
I literally did. I, I, this doesn't exist in the fire service. I made it. So when, what I'm trying to say here, like, and you know, once you get to a certain place in academics, if you care enough and if you're motivated enough, people will come to you. I don't care if it's underwater basket weaving. If you're really good at it, you, people will seek you out. So this victim mentality and this invalidating this, this experience from people that don't know, I love your project and like, hang on, this is actually what can happen here if you engage in it versus don't even try. So yeah, I, I do, I appreciate the project. Well, thank you. Thank you very much. And that's, that's a precisely, you know, one of the big reasons why this is existing, you know, to break these stereotypes about us as a population and about others, but also uh, motivation and, you know, what's, what's coming out of this too. And, and I think your episode is going to highlight this very well is the amount of success sauce and resilience sauce and perseverance sauce that all of these people are, are providing, uh, I think it'd be very, very useful for students and general public to say, oh, wait, listen, that this is what they went through. This is what they've accomplished. Maybe I can take a little piece of that and put it into my life and, and see if it works. So yeah, we're really excited to get this out. So thank you so much for, for being on the show and taking time to share your experiences and all your expertise with us, Jeff. Uh, I appreciate the invite. Like I said, I really like this project. I think uh, I'm a, I'm a little bummed nobody thought about it before, but you know, <laughs> better late than never. And so I I really think that this project because we need we need veterans in academia. We need more people. Not like I said, not not thoughts and prayers, but we need people to actually get out and put themselves as a, in a position of responsibility to actually make decisions and policies and clinical treatment rather than just criticizing. So I think, you know, I, I, I think this is a great initiative to get people up into those spaces to make, to feel what it's like to make those policy decisions rather than just feel powerless against them. Absolutely. That is great. That is great, sir. So everybody, thank you so much for listening to another episode of Veterans and Academics. I have been speaking with Dr. Jeff Hogan, and uh, we will include any works that Jeff uh, provides us when we release this episode, we will include those in link. And anything that he keeps us up to date on, we will also share via the blog so you can keep up with what Jeff is releasing and how he is helping others. So everybody, thanks for listening. Jeff, thank you again for being here, sir. Thank you, sir. We thank all of you for listening. Veterans in Academics is an all-veteran production of Freedom and Prosperity Think Tank. Content creation is brought to you by Dr. Luke McLeese and Dr. Michael Bevers. Web development is by Osvaldo Vargas.